You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Genesis 39 is where we're going to be, so uh, it's going to really help you to have your Bible open and uh, for you to to buckle in and, and get ready to go with us this morning. So Genesis 39. If you have stumbled in on us, uh, this is your first day to be with us. We are in part four of a set of sermons called Joseph and Jesus, where we are uh, working through Genesis chapter 37 through Genesis chapter 50. And so today, Genesis 39. But before we jump into Genesis 39, let me just recalibrate you to the story of Joseph and the story of these few chapters. And let me do it with uh, the words that could be the trailer to the movie, The Life of Joseph. Okay, so, so these would be the words just to recalibrate us around this story that would make up the trailer to his life. The story of Joseph is a storied presentation of providence. It puts, God, it puts Romans 8, 28, that all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose in story form. It's a tale of conflict and character, of evil and envy, of murderous rage and rebellion, of sexual temptation and severe trials. It's a breathtaking story of a man moving from a pit to a prison and then to prominence. It's a story about the invisible hand of God guiding the visible affairs of man to his good purposes. It's a story that shows us that because of Jesus, the greater Joseph, God's purposes cannot be thwarted by the schemes of Satan, the plans of man, or by the myth of coincidence. It's a story intended to remind Israel then and the church now that God, our Father, can be trusted even in the dark. And when you finish Genesis chapter 37, so when we finish that chapter, we would all say that that Joseph has been left in the dark, wouldn't we? So do you remember what's happening in Genesis 37? He is favored by his father, but hated by his brothers. They come up with a premeditated murderous plot for Joseph, and he walks into that plot in Dothan as they strip him of his robe and throw him into a pit and leave him to die. And then his brothers see some Ishmaelite trader pass, traders passing by. And rather than killing Joseph and leaving him to die in the pit, they, they said, why wouldn't we just make a profit off Joseph? So they lifted him up out of the pit and sold him as a slave to these Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. And do you know what's interesting about Genesis 37? Is there's no mention of God anywhere in the chapter. The voice of God never shows up. The name of God is never present. God is nowhere to be found in Genesis 37. You don't read about God anywhere in Genesis 37, the events of Genesis 37. And that is purposeful by the narrator of Genesis 37 to try to show us that even when we can't perceive God, even when we can't perceive him, that God is both powerful and God is present. That even when we can't see him, he he is there. That's what Genesis 37 was supposed to teach us. But now when we get into Genesis 39, we see something much different. God saturates this chapter. He is all over the place in this chapter. The, The word LORD, all caps, that's the covenantal name of God, the personal name of God, appears eight times in Genesis Uh, chapter 39. It's all over the place in Genesis 39. And then we have this phrase show up four times in Genesis 39. Four times in 23 verses we see this spoken about Joseph, that the Lord was with him. 
The, the Lord was with him. So you see it uh, in the first couple of, of verses twice and the last couple of verses twice. And here is the point of Genesis 39. This is the reason Genesis 39 is in the Bible. Is it supposed to be tangible proof for us? It's supposed to give us a living portrait of how God is with his people, even in the midst of dark seasons in their life. That God is with them. That God has not forsaken them. I mean, if you can imagine you being Joseph at the end of Genesis 37 and you asking, God, where are you? I don't see you anywhere. It feels like you're absent. Genesis 39 has written over it that God is not absent. It is supposed to be intentional proof from the narrator that God is with us in our suffering. That God is with us in the dark seasons of our life. Now here is my angst this morning. Again, this sermon is not for everyone in the room today. It's for certain people in the room that today you find yourself in the pits of Genesis 37 and the prisons of Genesis 39. And here's the truth, because we all live in a fallen world, even for those of us who aren't in it this morning, we're going to be. And this sermon's going to serve you in that moment where you fall into one, where, where life in a broken world happens to you. But, but for those here this morning that are, you find yourself in the pits, my, my hope is that today you would be reminded of this earth-shattering reality that God is with you. God is with you. God's not forsaken you. God hasn't left you. God hasn't walked out on you, but that God is actually with you like this morning in the midst of chaos in your life right now. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk you through the main point of the chapter, and then we're going to apply it to our life. So here's the main point. The, The main point goes like this. The Lord was with Joseph. That's the point of the chapter is the Lord was with this guy. Okay, so so let me just walk you through the four times that it says this in the chapter. We've got it in the opening couple of verses. So you have the first one in in, in verse 2. You see it in verse 2? It says, the Lord was with Joseph. Then look at verse 3. His master saw this. He saw that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph. Then you skip all the way down to verse 21, and we see it for the third time. In Genesis uh, chapter 39, verse 21, we see it again. But the Lord was with Joseph. And we get it again in verse 23. You see it there in the middle of that verse? Verse 23, the Lord was with him. Four times, 23 verses, the Lord is screaming to us. The Bible is screaming to us, here's what I want you to see. That in this season of Joseph's life, the ups and downs of Genesis chapter 39, that God is with him. God has not left him. He's with him. Now, when you see that word with, I just want you to look at that in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. It is important that you get the right mental awareness of what that word with means. It's not okay to think anything about that with. You've got to think the right thing about what that with is communicating. When it says the Lord is with Joseph, it is not talking about God's omnipresence. It's not talking about that God is everywhere at all times, so of course he would be with Joseph. God is all places at all times, but that's not what this with in Genesis 39 means and is referring to. This with is not referring to God's generic and general care for the world and generic and general care for people. It's not saying, well, God loves everybody and cares for everybody, so of course he would care for Joseph. That is not what this with means. 
Th- this width is the covenant. I love how one author says it. He says this width is God's covenantal companionship with Joseph. This width is signaling and signifying a selective and, and, a, and a specific love that God has of Joseph. It is that sort of a width, a special sort of a width, a covenantal companionship sort of a width. And you kind of see this in, in verse 21. Look at verse 21. It says this about this width, God being with Joseph. In verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Steadfast love. If, you, if you've got something to underline in your Bible, underline that. Steadfast love. See, that word steadfast love is a huge biblical word. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And, and that word is used throughout the Bible to describe not only the character and the nature of God, but it's used to describe God's posture towards his covenant people. God's posture and his special love towards his sons and daughters. It's used to describe that about God, how how he selectively loves and especially loves his covenant people. It is that sort of a word, steadfast love, hesed. I, I love how one author describes what that steadfast love of God looks like or is, that hesed of God. He describes it like this, and this will be on the screen for you. That Hesed describes the consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, one-way love of God. That's what Hesed means. And the sort of whiff that we have in Genesis 39 is that sort of a whiff. An unrelenting width. It's a, lo- it's, it's a width that signifies the love of God that is relentless. That is one way. It's used to show that God has binded himself to Joseph and will never let go of Joseph. I love how another author describes it. He describes that hesed of God or that withness of God in Genesis 39 as the undeserved selective affection by which God binds himself to his people. The undeserved, selective affection of God for his covenant children. This is the width of Genesis 39. It's not a generic width. It's a specific and personalized width. I love how Augustine, the church reform, or the, the, one of the church fathers, he described this sort of love of God and this sort of withness of God like this. That, that what, what's, what's happening here, this witness of God in Genesis 39 is God loving his sons and daughters as if there is not another person on the planet to love. Now, now feel that and hear that. that. That God is with Joseph in Genesis 39 like there is not another human being that God is with on the planet. That it is a specific and a personal witness. That God is looking at Joseph and saying, I am with you in such a huge and powerful and personal love that it's as as if I have no one else to love on the face of the planet. That's what we're talking about in Genesis 39. That's That's what it means when it says the Lord is with Joseph. Okay, now I just want to apply that to several different scenes of Joseph's life in Genesis 39. So the point is, is that the Lord is with Joseph. And now we see it play out in several different ways. Here's verse one. It says this. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, 
had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And here's what Genesis 39 is supposed to show us here, that the Lord is with Joseph even in this dark season of slavery. He is a slave as Genesis 39 opens. And Genesis 39 is communicating to us that God is with him even there, even in the midst of slavery, that the God is with Joseph as if there is no other person on the planet to be with, that even in the midst of slavery, God is, God is loving Joseph as if there is no other person on the planet to love. Okay, that, that's in slavery. Now, now don't just pass over that really quickly. In Genesis 37, Joseph is already sold once. So in Genesis 39, this is his second time to be sold. So, so he has put on the selling block in Egypt, paraded around like a piece of meat, and auctioned off to the highest bidder. So you're not just supposed to read over that. You're supposed to feel that. I mean, can you get a sense of if that was you, what you would be feeling? That you just got sold into slavery. You're in a culture that you don't know. Customs that you don't know. A language that you don't know. And you've just been sold to a man that you don't know. That he could kill you tomorrow. And there's no retribution for that. Nobody's going to blink an eye at that. He could beat you senseless tomorrow. There's no retribution for that. Joseph is sold as a slave. And he is powerless to change his circumstances. And Genesis 39 is telling us, that, that even in the midst of that, God is with Joseph. And he is with Joseph in such a way that it's as if there is no other person that God is with in the universe. That the God loves Joseph. And he loves him in such a way as if there is no other person on the planet to love. That God is with Joseph even there. So, so the story keeps going. And uh, you get into to verse 2 and beyond. And uh, verse 2 through 6, it seems like life is kind of picking up. Like if you're rooting for Joseph in this story, this is the moment where you kind of take a deep breath and, and say, thank you, God. Something good is happening to our man here, right? So his life kind of picks up some traction. Things are going well. It seems as if the dark clouds over Joseph's life, the sun is like broken through those clouds. That's what it seems like until you get to the end of verse 6. So at the end of verse 6, you have this. You see the word now? That's signaling a new shift in the scene here. So now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. You're almost like after you read that, like waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like that's got some ominous overtones. Like why are they telling us that? Well, verse 7 tells you why they're telling you that. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Verse 7. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now in the Hebrew, that's two forceful words. It would be like her saying in English two words, like almost two commands, down sex. This is what's happening in Genesis 39, verse 7. Two forceful words, down sex. This is a 20-year-old boy, never been married, and you've got not only a powerful lady, but probably a beautiful lady who is seductively trying to get him to have sex with her. So he, he explains the reason he won't do it. And then look at verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, this isn't a one-time deal. This is day after day, her trying to seduce him. 
He would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Again, two forceful words, down, sex, almost a command. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And, and here's what we see happening in Genesis chapter 39 is that the Lord is with Joseph even in the dark season of this temptation. Not only a powerful lady, but probably a beautiful lady commanding a 20-year-old boy to have sex with her. I mean, can you just feel the the pull of, I mean, that that is a horrible situation for a 20-year-old boy to be in. And here's the point of Genesis chapter 39 is that even in the midst of severe and seductive temptation, that the Lord was with Joseph as if there was no other person on the planet to be with. That God was actively loving Joseph as if there was no other person on the planet that God was loving. That God was with Joseph, even here. So, so Joseph refuses, and you would think that this would be the part of the story where surely things are going to start going better because he's refused. Like surely his life is going to kind of take a a continual turn for the good direction because he's actually being faithful and obedient to God, right? Wrong. It goes worse for Joseph, doesn't it? I mean, let this put to death the idea that if you just do better and believe better, that your life will be better. That is not promised to you. There is no place that, that God promised you that in this life. There is no place that God says that. There's no place that God's going to tell you, you do better, you believe better, and automatically your life is just going to go straight up. Nowhere does God say that. Some of us need to wrestle with this. That, that you being faithful to God is not a promise by God that he will give you more comfort. But you being faithful to God will actually many times cost you comfort. That it doesn't gain you a pain-free life. Many times, faithfulness to God will actually create pain in your life. I mean, some of us need to really wrestle with that. So rather than getting better, uh, it goes worse for Joseph. So pick it up in verse 13. Here's how it gets worse for Joseph. He has refused her seductive um, pulls. And in verse 13, this is what happened. And as soon as she saw that he left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, and here's what you're about to see. She is about to build an airtight case built on false accusations. She is about to frame our man Joseph. I mean, it, it is about to go really badly for him. So, so she calls the men of the house together and says this. See, he, talking about Potiphar, her husband, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up the garment by her side until her master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me, or some translations would say, to make sport of me. Verse 18. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, that this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And you know what Genesis 39 is supposed to show us? That God is with Joseph 
even in the midst of false accusations, even in the dark seasons of false accusation. You, you know, like that, that moment where uh, the rumor is so far out ahead of you that there's no getting in front of that. Like, th- there was no getting in front of this for Joseph. Th- there was no way for him to head that off at the pass. This was an airtight case built on false accusations, and he was powerless to do anything about it. And this chapter is supposed to remind us that even there, in the midst of our reputation, in the midst of Joseph's reputation being ripped to shreds, that the God is with Joseph in such a way that it's as if he has got no one else on the planet to be with. That he's loving Joseph as if there is no one on the planet, no one else that he's loving. That God is with Joseph even there. And then the story finishes in verse 20. And Joseph's master took him to the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. And verse 21 is showing us that even in the dark seasons of prison time, that God is with Joseph even there. That even him being falsely accused, thrown into prison, listen, falsely accused, Didn't do anything to deserve it. He's in prison watching his life waste away. And Genesis 39 is reminding us that even there, God is with Joseph. He's with Joseph in such a way that it's as if there is no one else to be with. He is loving Joseph as if there is no one on the planet, no one else that God is loving. That God is with Joseph even there, in prison, life disintegrating around him, that, that God is even there. Okay, so, so this, is where, this is where we take a turn. So Genesis 39 is not primarily supposed to show us how God is with Joseph. That is not the primary point of Genesis 39. The primary point of Genesis 39 is for God to show us how he is with all of his sons and daughters. How he is with all of his covenant kids. How he is with you and he is with me if we are in Christ. The point of Genesis 39 really has nothing to do with Joseph. It has everything to do with, because of Jesus, how God is with you and how God is with me. That's the point of Genesis 39. To show us that in the dark seasons of suffering in our life, that God is with us. That the God is with you, as if there's no other person on the planet that God is with. That in the middle of your suffering, that the God is loving you as if there is no other person on the planet that God is loving. Okay, now, now let me stop here. We need to chat about this for a second. Because he, here's the truth for some of us this morning, that you find yourself in the deep pits of suffering. And the terrible prisons of suffering. That in those moments, what we need more than theological like questions and answers. What we need more than solving the problem of how God relates to evildoers and evil in general. What we need more than theological abstract things is we need the the relational assurance the relational assurance that God is with us in the middle of that. See, if if you're in the middle of pits right now, 
Here, what, what you need more than anything is not theological answers. You need relational answers. I love what Mike Wilkerson is. He's talking about what it feels like and the sort of questions that we raise to God as we're in the prison and pits of our life. Dark seasons of suffering. What, what are those questions? How is it that we start looking at God in those moments? And this is how he describes it. This will be on the screen for you. The questions we ask in the midst of suffering aren't mainly intellectual ones about God's relationship to evil and evildoers. They are emotional questions, relational questions. The, the relational ones, emotional ones, such as, how can I trust God who has the power to make it stop but doesn't? You ever ask that one? I mean, how can this God be trusted who, who is all-powerful and can make it stop right now, but he chooses not to? Who is this indifferent God who makes such grand promises and then watches as his people are treated so unjustly? Who is this God? What is wrong with him? I mean, does he feel anything at all when he hears their wailings? I mean, does God hear? I mean, is he just turning like a deaf ear to us or does he actually hear and see what's going on? Or does he just stand back at a distance, letting random events, the plans of evil men, and the forces of nature take their course? See, this is the sort of questions that we ask when we find ourselves in the middle of our prisons, in the middle of the dark seasons of suffering. Those are the questions. They're emotional questions. They're relational questions. And here is what Genesis 39 is trying to remind all of us that find ourselves there today. Is that in the middle of those questions and in the middle of that season of suffering, that God is actually with you. He's with you in like this sense of like there's no other person to be with on the planet but you. He's with you like that that there's no other person on the planet to love. He's loving you right now like that. So here, here's what I want to answer. What does it mean for God to be with us in our suffering? What does that mean? What are we supposed to think about that? What are we supposed to feel about that? And so I want to give you a couple of answers to that, three answers to it. And I want you to turn forward in your Bible to Exodus chapter 2. So you're in Genesis 39, so just keep flipping to the right, and uh, you're going to run right into Exodus and go to Exodus chapter 2. So you can just kind of mark Genesis, put, put a piece of paper in it. We're going to be back there in a second. But uh, Exodus chapter 2 is where you need to be. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. What is it like for God to be with us in suffering? What does that mean? Here's, here's a, a good place to see the answer to that. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 says this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Now let me give you the context of, of, Genesis, or of uh, Exodus chapter 2. In Exodus chapter 1, what we have happening is the Pharaoh that knew Joseph died. And this Pharaoh didn't care about Joseph. He didn't care about the fact that it was because of Joseph that their nation survived an incredibly difficult famine. He didn't care about that. 
He didn't know Joseph, didn't care about the people of Israel, and he started to look upon the people of Israel and be very fearful of them. They had multiplied in the land, that there was a ton of them, and he's starting to think this. If, some, if someone invades us and the people of Israel start fighting for them and not for us, we're, de- we're doomed. This is going to go really badly for us. So in Exodus 1, it says that he started to deal shrewdly with the people of Israel. And then it gives some evidence on what that means. It says he oppressed them, that he enslaved them. He he made the whole people of Israel their slaves. And it got to the point in in Exodus chapter 1 where Pharaoh commands, he kind of forms this edict against the people of Israel that says this, if you have a male baby, we are going to kill that male baby. He can't live. Now, you need to feel that. Don't just read that and hear that. You've got to feel that. If you're a parent in this room and you have a little boy, do you remember the moment where you had that little boy and a doctor said, here they are, this is yours? And can you imagine a Pharaoh coming into that room, grabbing that boy from you and killing him? That's Exodus 1. That's the sort of despair you have in Exodus 1. And listen, the people of Israel are powerless to change it. They can't do anything about it. They are slaves against their will. They are losing their firstborn, their, their sons. This is the sort of despair. This is the sort of anxiety. This is the sort of frustration that you have spilling out in Exodus chapter 2 when it says that because of their slavery, they cried out for help. That is despair behind those words. That is anguish. That is groanings behind those words. And then this is what we read after that. So because of their slavery, they cried out for help. And it says this, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham with Isaac, and with Jacob. Here's what Exodus 2 is telling us here, that in the midst of our suffering, that God hears us. In the midst of us crying out for help, that God actually hears us. That God has not turned a deaf ear to you. You know, like those moments where where it's two o'clock and you can't go to bed because all you can feel is the anxiety and pain of your present circumstances? That in that moment when you are crying out to God, that God actually hears. See, it's interesting. In the midst of suffering, I think this is one of the things that happens to us. We become functional deists. And here's what a deist believes. Like, it's not that we like say that there is no God. It's not that we deny the existence of God. A deist just believes that God is not near us and God does not hear us. And in the midst of suffering, if we're not careful, we'll functionally become that and think that. That God is nowhere to be found. He doesn't hear me in the midst of this, and he is not near me in the midst of this. That the God does not hear my cries. He has turned a deaf ear to me. And what Exodus is reminding us is that part of what it means for God to be with us in the midst of our suffering is that God actually hears our cries for help. It was interesting, a couple of years ago, Hannah was, well, she was two, she's four now, so she was two then, and we were in my garage, and I was doing a little project, and Hannah was out in the garage with me, two years old, just kind of playing around, um, you know, just kind of at my feet as I was doing my thing. 
and she was in, we had a little, this red wagon thing, and so she was in that wagon, and it's got like a long black tongue that you would use to pull the wagon with. She decides that she's going to walk like out of like the, the wagon piece, and she's going to try to walk out of the wagon by walking down that, that tongue of, of the wagon. And uh, so you can probably see where this is going. No place good. And so well, I'm doing my thing, and she is walking down the tongue of, of this wagon, trying to get out of it. And about that time, she slips and she falls. And you know, when somebody falls, you kind of hear this, Ugh! so I kind of heard that just in time to look back and see her kind of smack her head on the cement, you know, floor of the garage. And, uh, you know, at that moment, you're kind of waiting to see what happens. And uh, is this going to be like a, oh my gosh, she, she, she's dead, right? I mean, what, what is happening right now in this moment? And all she did was kind of whimper. It wasn't a big deal. She just kind of whimpered for a second. It wasn't like a, I am dead right now, sort of a cry. It was just a little whimper. So I went over, picked her up, and I just threw her on my shoulder. Just got her right here. She's got her head on my shoulder, still kind of whimpering. And I'm kind of finishing my little project that I'm doing. And about that time, Laura hears the, the crash. She hears the whimper. And she comes out into the garage and says, oh, there's blood. Well, that's news to me. And so, uh, so I, I grab Hannah, to uh, turn her around, and look at her forehead, and there is a massive gash in her forehead. I'm ta- I, 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 I wanted to put it up on the screen for you, but I thought I would spare you the disgusting nature of that. But I'm talking, it was an inch and a half long gash right here in the middle of her forehead that was probably like a half inch just stretched open. It was the sort of gash that a Band-Aid isn't going to fix. You know what I'm saying? A Band-Aid was not the solution. So we pick her up and we take her to urgent care. So we, we get her to urgent care and uh, they, they get Hannah and I back in the back room. They wouldn't let Laura come back because this was about to be really traumatic and they didn't want a mom there that might pass out in the midst of this whole thing. So Hannah and I are back there. The doctor comes in and he brings with him a wooden board. I don't know what they're about to do with this board, but I can tell you it doesn't look good. This board had straps everywhere on it. So the board automatically looks even worse now. So they throw Hannah, two years old, down on this board, and we have to strap her legs in. And as soon as we put the first straps on her legs, can you just imagine what's happening? She goes nuts. And then not only are we talking legs, then we have to buckle like her, her, leg, like her, her legs down. And then it's her arms. We have to strap her arms onto this wooden plank. And then we have to strap down her chest. And then we have to strap down her head to this wooden board. Where now she can't move anything. Can't move her legs, can't move her arms, can't move her head. And then this doctor brings out this blue sterile cloth that has a hole in it. And puts that blue sterile cloth over her face. To where it's just got this one opening right here on her forehead where where they've got a sterile workplace. But she's completely covered up. And then I see this doctor take out this needle that I kid you not, it looked like it was the size of a pencil. This thing was huge. You need that to do this? Are you, are you kidding me? So, so he pulls out this needle and I watch him jab that needle straight into that cut. Now, if you can just picture the sights and sounds of this moment, Hannah is absolutely beside herself. She has totally lost it. She is screaming at the top of her lungs, Daddy! Daddy, help me! I mean, can you just imagine that moment? 
And, and this was actually probably the fun, it, it brought a little bit of comedic relief into this. Her line that she kept going back, back to, so it would be, Daddy, help me, Daddy, help me. She would keep saying, Daddy, this isn't working. <laughs> this is not working. Now, okay, so I, I want you to picture that scene for a second. And I want you to picture, not, not me and my daughter, but, but you and one of your sons or daughter. And maybe you don't have kids this morning. Just picture you and just think about what it would look like to have your son or daughter strapped onto that table. Them jabbing a needle into that cut. Her screaming at the top of her lungs, Daddy, help me. And can you imagine like the brokenheartedness that you feel at that moment as a dad? Can you imagine how acute your ears are to listening to the cries of your little daughter there? And you know, I think a lot of us need to get that picture of God for us right now. That some of us are in the pit and we think that God has just left the room and walked out of the building. When in reality, God is near right beside us and he is listening to every one of your cries for help. I mean, can you feel that? That God's listening to every one of those cries, feeling every one of those cries. See, this is what it means for God to be with us, that he hears. Like every one of your cries for help, that he actually hears those. And it's not just that he hears, but that he helps. I'm sorry, that he hurts with us. He he doesn't just hear us in the midst of our suffering. He hurts with us in the midst of our suffering. So Exodus chapter 2, they're groaning out because of their slavery. They they are crying out for God. Their their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And then look at verse 25 of Exodus chapter 2 into that pain and into that suffering, into their slavery, God says, the Bible says, and God saw the people of Israel. And then I love these last three words, and God knew. And God knew. When it says that God knew, it doesn't just mean that God sees everything happening to the people of Israel. It means that God feels everything happening to the people of Israel. That they're not hurting alone in the midst of this. That God is hurting with them. That like God is experiencing that with them. That that when when their sons are being slaughtered, that God actually feels that with them. When they are enslaved to a people, that God actually feels that with them. That God knows. He feels feels that. He can look at you right now and say, I know what it feels like. And see, some of us right now, we're in the pit and we're wondering this, how in the world can God feel what I'm feeling right now? How can God do that? There is no way God can feel what I'm feeling right now. How how can God, how can God say he knows experientially what I'm feeling? Okay, now I want you to, to close your Bible for a second. And I'm going to have all these these passages up on the screen. I want to give you evidence of how God knows this. 
And so more, more than I want you taking notes and more than I want you writing stuff down and more than I want you to, to write down th- these various places, we're going to post them all in the city. I want you to feel the, these things. So as we're reading, we're not just trying to get information. We're trying to feel what's happening in these passages. So how can God say that he experientially knows what we're feeling in the midst of the prisons and the pits of our life? Luke chapter 4, it'll be on the screen for you, says this. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil... And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all of you all authority and their glory. And it has been delivered to me and I will, I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, all of these things will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Have you ever been in that moment of temptation where the battle between the flesh and the spirit is raging inside of you? Where where so badly the flesh is pulling you to evil, pulling you towards sin pulling you towards pornography, pulling you to cheating, pulling you to lying. We're we're just pulling you with such force, such seductive force. And and here's what we see in Luke chapter 4, that that Jesus was led into the Spirit and rather, or into the wilderness by the Spirit, and rather rather than the wilderness being a moment where he is communing with God, do you know the only voice Jesus hears for 40 days in the wilderness is Satan's the only voice. For 40 days, he is ruthlessly and relentlessly, severely, seductively tempted by Satan. Luke 4 is showing us that that Jesus has tasted temptation, hadn't he? That, That Jesus has tasted that. That he knows what it feels like to be tempted. In Matthew chapter 21, we have this moment where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the crowds are going wild for Jesus. They are going nuts. They want Jesus to be the next king and they are ready to put the crown on his head. But ironically, four days later in Matthew 27, he has been falsely accused. He has been beaten beyond recognition. And Pilate stands his body up before that same crowd that in Matthew 21 was chanting for him to be the king. But in Matthew 27, here's what we read. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they, that same mob that loved him four days later, they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? 
son. But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Have you ever been hated before? I mean like ruthlessly hated. Like a person or a group of people, when they think about you, it is murderous plans that they are forming. I mean, they, they hate you. I mean, there is envy and there is, there is wrath. I mean, they, maybe it's the color of your skin. Maybe it's, just, maybe it's just who you are. Maybe it's what you look like. Maybe you don't even know why it is that they hate you. But they absolutely hate you. And what Matthew 27 is showing us is that Jesus has tasted hatred. He's tasted that. In Luke chapter 22, we've got this scene that starts like this in verse 47. While he was still speaking, there, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one, and then it says this, one of the twelve. And, and that, that little extra added detail there, one of the twelve, is meant to be there for a reason. It's supposed to communicate something to you. See, Jesus had a lot of followers in his life, but he only invited twelve people to come in as an inner circle crew. Like it was 12 people that he invited into his inner circle. He gave a VIP pass, an all-access pass. For the next three years, we are about to live together. We're about to do it all together. Everything that's happening in the next three years, you're on the inside of seeing it all. I am opening up my life to you. See, the reason it says one of the 12 is it's supposed to show us that this is a trusted friend of Jesus. This is inner circle for Jesus. This is someone that Jesus loves. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading that crowd coming to Jesus. And Judas drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to Judas, 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 would, would you betray me, the, the Son of Man, with, with a kiss? J- Judas, are, are you you're betraying me with a kiss here? You ever tasted betrayal? I mean like good friend that turns his back on you and cuts you as he does it. You ever tasted some of that? Just the soul-shattering betrayal of a person that you trust? And listen, we... We could talk about maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a mom or a dad, maybe it's a family member that you should have been able to trust, but actually turned that trust against you and abused you with that trust. You you ever tasted that sort of betrayal? Luke 22 is showing us that that Jesus did, that, that he tasted that betrayal. Inner circle, VIP, friend, trusted friend. Did he tasted betrayal like that? Matthew chapter 26, um, we've got this scene of Jesus right before he is about to go to the cross. Right before he is about to be murdered for the sin of the world. And he's in the garden, and this is what it says in Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And, ta- and taking with him Peter... And the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Like his soul began to be sorrowful. 
Like his soul began to be troubled. And it goes on to say, then he said to them, my soul right now in this moment is very sorrowful. If you've got an NIV, it says overwhelmed with sorrow. That right now I feel overwhelmed in this moment. Even to the point of death, he says, remain here and watch with me. (coughs) And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed. Have you ever had that moment where you feel so overwhelmed? Anxiety and frustration and despair break over your life to the point where you don't know what to do. You don't know where to go. You've cried as much as you can cry. You've screamed as much as you can scream. You feel so overwhelmed that it feels hopeless. Have you ever had that moment? Maybe it's financial decisions. Maybe it's just being over, like, obligated. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe, where you just feel totally overwhelmed and don't know what to do or where to go. What where all you know to do is fall on your face and cry out to God. You ever had that moment? Matthew 26 is showing us that, that Jesus tasted what it, what it feels like to be overwhelmed. That, that he tasted that. That passage goes on in verse 39 and says this, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You ever been on that sort of a difficult road where you find God has you in a place and on a road that you'd have never have picked for yourself? You'd have never have chosen, but you find yourself on a really, really difficult road. And maybe that's the, the road of maybe you've got a rebellious kid in your house. Maybe you've got a rebellious spouse. Maybe financially everything has been crushed. Maybe, maybe it's Maybe it's just walking through the deep and dark days of despair and depression. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a physical problem that you have. It's just a difficult road that you would have never picked on your own, but you find yourself living there on that road. And can I just tell you what Matthew 26 is telling us? That Jesus has tasted that road. He's tasted that road that is difficult, that is lined with thorns. He's tasted that road. One more for you, John 11. Here's the context of John 11. Uh, Jesus has a friend that he loves, Lazarus, and Lazarus has died. Lazarus is gone. He he is dead. And and this is where we pick it up when Jesus makes his way to the village where where Lazarus' family is. And in John 11, verse 33, here's what we've got. When Jesus saw her weeping, this is uh, Lazarus' sisters weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to them, where have you laid him? Where have you put Lazarus? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, it says this, Jesus wept. That he wept. Like he, have you ever tasted the, the, just the loss of someone that you love? Like tasted that sort of sting, the sting of loss. Like you love your dad and you lost your dad. You loved your son, but you lost your son. The sting of that sort of loss. 
Laura and I were sitting there talking as we were going to bed last night. Last night marked the 17-year anniversary of her dad dying of a heart attack. That's just the sting of loss. It hurts. It it grieves us. It's interesting. When C.S. Lewis was... uh, His wife had died, and he wrote a book about the grief that he experienced after his wife died. And in that book, it's called A Grief Observed. He made an interesting observation. He said that that no one ever told me that grief would feel so much like fear. And if you've tasted grief, you know that to be true. That in the middle of grief, just extreme grief, when we have experienced loss, time seems to stand still, and it feels like the floor underneath us has collapsed and we're in a free fall, about to die in that free fall. That's what grief feels like to us. And, and you know what John 11 is saying? That, that Jesus has tasted the sting of loss. He's tasted that. Every time I read through the New Testament, I have like this overwhelming question start to rise to the surface. Why in the world would Jesus put himself through all that? I'm just saying this. If I'm God about to wrap on flesh, I don't think I'm going for the stable. I think I'll take a nice hospital. If I'm Jesus, I'm God in the flesh, I don't think I'm up for betrayal. I think I would have walled my life off from that. I don't think I'm up for the hatred. I don't think I'm up for the pain of loss. I don't think I'm up for the feeling of being overwhelmed. I think I'll, I'll do without all of that and go about my life. But Jesus didn't do without any of that. He willfully chose the road that had all of that into it. And do you know why that is? According to Hebrews chapter 2, the reason that Jesus chose that road is so when you and I find ourselves in the pits of Genesis 37, the prisons of Genesis 39, that Jesus, God in the flesh, can look at us and say, I know what that feels like. I have experientially tasted that. I know what that feels like. You're not alone in that. I am with you in that. And part of me being with you in that is me looking at you and saying, I know what that feels like. When you have this thought of no one else in the world can know what that feels like, God can look at you and say, I do. I know exactly what that feels like. So I think a lot of us get this wrong picture of what God looks like to us in suffering. That a lot of us have this picture of God that if we could, if we could view like ourself on a beach and, and, and the ocean, the cold ocean being suffering, we have this view of God that he's on the beach and he grabs us and throws us into the cold water of suffering. Good luck. I hope you can survive. But that is not the view of God in the Bible. God being with us means this, that when we're thrown into the midst of suffering and we land in the water, that God's already in the water. That God actually catches us when we're thrown into the water. That God's there in the midst of it. He's already tasted that water. He's already felt that water. That God knows. See, this is what it means for God to be with us. That God hurts with us. He knows what it feels like. And let me just throw out this last one. He doesn't just hear, he doesn't just hurt with us, but, but the Lord promises to heal our suffering. This is the great news about God being with us. Is he has pledged to be with us, not just now, but for forever. 
And I want you to turn back to Genesis uh, chapter 41. I want to I just show you this and how this played out for Joseph. In Genesis 39, so go to Genesis chapter 41. In Genesis chapter 39, Joseph is sitting in prison as the story ends. And, and I don't think he would have ever have imagined him actually being able to say what he does in Genesis 41. But, but here's, what, here's what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41, verse 51 says this. He's, just had, he, he's married, he's just had two baby boys. And this is what Joseph says. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. And this is why he called him Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house that God has made me forget those things. And then the name of the second he called Ephraim. Why did he call him Ephraim? For God made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. I don't think in Genesis 39 he would have ever pictured being able to say that. This is a picture of what God can do as he puts the medicine of the gospel in our deepest wounds of suffering. That God can actually heal us in the midst of our suffering. That that we are promised a time in Revelation 21 where God will recreate a new heavens and a new earth. And in that new heavens and new earth, there'll be no more suffering, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. That all of our tears will be done away with. But here's the good news about what God promises for us in the midst of our suffering. It isn't just that God will do away with our tears. It's that God will absolutely undo our suffering. See, the promise of the gospel and the promise of life with God forever is not just that God will wipe every tear from our eye, but that he will bottle up every tear that you have ever cried, and he will turn those tears into everlasting joy. That's the promise of the gospel in the midst of your suffering. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.